Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as uh, my brother Tim prayed earlier, yes, it is that season of thanksgiving. There is so much for us to be thankful for. And uh, Lord, I'm so thankful for this church, Calvary Bible Church. Lord, we are thankful for the 70 plus whatever years ago it was that this church was founded, that it was founded on the truth of your word. And Lord, we pray for 70 plus years in the future and, and, and until or as long as you would tarry, Lord, that this church would be in existence here in this community and that it would always, always be a church that is about the proclamation of your word. Lord, now we turn to your word and we ask for your Holy Spirit's help in discerning your word and understanding it and having proper interpretation and certainly, Lord, the way that each one of us as individuals should apply it to our lives. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue with our kind of final segment here on the Holy Spirit, recognizing there is so much more that can and should be said about the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's not that we won't ever say those things or learn those things as we move through God's Word over the next weeks, months, years, what have you, we will have more opportunities to continue to look deeper at the Spirit. But this morning, we want to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. That would be you and I, as far as you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. This morning, I want to return to a, just a, a short illustration that I began on uh, day one of this um, Holy Spirit study, and I returned to a church that I am just very familiar with from having lived up in the North State, Bethel Church of Reading, and um, as I mentioned before, they are an extreme charismatic church, part of the new apostolic reformation that believes that the Holy Spirit today imparts gifts of tongues and prophecy as in new revelation, healings, and whose people participate in such things as these, along with some very bizarre practices, things like what they call fire tunnels, In fact, I went online and just kind of refreshed my memory of some of these things. A a fire tunnel will be where people of the church will gather and sometimes they'll have kind of their hands up almost like you're playing a children's game and people will come down through the tunnel and they have their uh, lay hands on them and they come out the other side and and they've been or supposedly received some special impartation of the Holy Spirit and they will often start laughing and giggling. They will fall on the ground. They will sometimes convulse and just strange things take place. There have been uh, folks from the church that have been a part of what is called 
grave sucking or grave soaking, which is the belief that if you are to go to a, a, a um, person's grave that was uh, like a, a great man or woman of, of God, a spiritual giant, if you will, that there might be there, they call it their mantle, and, uh, and, and that there's a leftover mantle of them that, that can come up through the ground and, um, and come upon them. They, as like I said, participate in what they believe are healings and even supposed resurrections. The resurrection aspect I, I know well from a close friend of mine who was, I was on the west side of Reading in the Trinity Alps. He was on the Bernie side in the eastern side when um, he told me the story once of how he was called out as a sheriff's chaplain to, uh, he's a pastor, but working with the sheriffs as a chaplain, and, and was called to a house where a gal's significant other um, had passed away. She had um, heard about this church, Bethel, and how they sent out resurrection teams. She was not a believer, and so she had put in a call to Bethel to ask for a resurrection team to come and resurrect her dead significant other. When my friend um, got there to the house, he said, there he was, propped up in bed, dead, and and she would not release the body to the coroner because the, the um, resurrection team had not yet come. He was able to share the gospel with her, got her to go ahead and sign the body over. The coroner came, and guess who called not five minutes after that? Bethel Church. Oh, we have a resurrection team. So this sends her into hysterics because what's going to happen now if he's at the morgue? Will he still be resurrected? My friend said, I prayed with her and I left. I didn't quite want to be there when Bethel showed up. And, uh, and he said, the only thing I can say is uh, three days later, his obituary was in the paper. Along with the church, uh, Bethel Church, they also have a school that they call the School of Supernatural Ministry. On their website, the school's introduction reads, quote, At Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, will equip you to walk in the gifts of of the Spirit, end quote. And what they mean by this is that they will teach you how to do things like speak in tongues, how to receive direct revelation from God, and perform healings and miracles, including these supposed resurrections. The school has been in existence for some 20 plus years they boast 13,000 plus graduates representing over 100 countries throughout the globe. It is a huge enterprise. It is a huge enterprise even for the city of Redding, California. Out of the 100,000 or, so, 100, or so people, um, just a few years back, Bethel was the number one single greatest employer in the city. They even had taken over the city center, um, the, the um, convention center, because they hosted so many of their events there. Friends, what, what is taking place at a church like that is not the work of the Holy Spirit, but I would go so far as to say I believe it's doctrines of demons. And what we want to examine here today, however, is the true biblical work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, in the life of you and I. 
And so last week we, we left off with the day of Pentecost. We were in the book of Acts where we heard from Peter about the fact that the Holy Spirit would now fulfill Jesus' promise by indwelling every person saved by God's grace through faith. And, and uh, what I would love to do, and when we preach the book of Acts someday, then um, we, will, we will continue because there are some, some really incredible stories of the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But we're, we're going to kind of, we're going to skip over that for the time being. We'll, we'll look at it another time. And there's, there's, as I mentioned, there's so much more to be said in regard to the Holy Spirit and, and in fact, book after book after book after book have been written on the subject of the Holy Spirit. So needless to say, the series that we've done, the five or six parts, has not been exhaustive to say the least. But this being said, for this last message, what I really wanted to focus on is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in you and I in the life of a believer. And uh, as far as there is more to say, we're going to try to put some of this also out in a Uh, some blogs, things like that. So, by way of a quick reminder, we learned last week that starting with the day of Pentecost, all believers, upon their salvation, receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is their baptism of the Holy Spirit. They are placed into the body of Christ at that moment, and they have the Holy Spirit now indwelling them. The indwelling is permanent. And as Jesus said, will last forever, referring to the remainder of their earthly lives. At the end of Peter's gospel sermon in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the people who heard his message, if you recall, said, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Well, guess what? We're still all here, so he is still calling people to himself. This indwelling of the Spirit is easily affirmed by other passages. I read these last week, such as 1 Corinthians 3.16, where Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In other words, you should know, right? As far as you are a believer in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and that you are not your own. In Romans 8, verses 9 to 11, Paul continues to refer to the fact that Jesus' spirit, even the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, all one and the same, dwells in you, the believer. But what does that look like? I mean, what does being indwelt really kind of entail? How does, it, how does it affect us, our daily lives as Christians? And that's what we'll focus on today. And, and mind you, let me just interject and say too, is I, I realize we're not really covering this. Some people uh, as believers think that the Holy Spirit now is our conscience. No, we all have consciences, right? Unbelievers have consciences. The Holy Spirit now informs your conscience. 
by dwelling in you. But our first point we're going to look at is a, kind of a short one. But the Holy Spirit seals. When, when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came in and indwelt you at that moment of salvation, the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit sealed you. Uh, with this, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, ah, just a, those first, what, 14 verses are just amazing. And it's like, I think uh, down to verse 12, it's like one big run-on sentence for Paul. It's, it's, it just keeps going and going. It's just an incredible passage. But Paul is sharing some of the spiritual blessings that we have as believers. Some of the spiritual blessings of redemption, of being redeemed. And he says this, if you look down to verse 13. In him, meaning Christ, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a, a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now I'm going to ask you to, well, I'm going to read, uh, skip over to chapter 4, verse 30. Chapter 4, verse 30, which says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, right? And that's that, that um, um, this has already happened to us. We have been saved, we have been redeemed, and we look forward to that, that, that final redemption when we are glorified, perfected, made to be like Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 22, Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, as a pledge for your eternal life, for your glorification. Seals. Seals can be used or set for the sake of security, right? Even a wax seal on a letter, it shows the letter hasn't been opened. We had the seal, of course, on Jesus's tomb to know if indeed somebody had had rolled the stone away and gotten in there. Uh, Seals are also a symbol of authenticity or approval. They could attest, confirm, or establish something, they were also signs of ownership and possession. So in this sense, it's Christ who owns you and his Holy Spirit who seals you. He has permanently made you his possession. You being sealed by the Holy Spirit is God's pledge and promise of your inheritance until the day of redemption. When it is all completed, right? 
for you. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee that you will never be lost, you will never be left, you will never be forsaken. Your eternal life with Christ is secure because of this sealing. And praise be to God that you can't unseal yourself. You can't disown yourself. You you can't remove yourself in any way, shape, or form from him. You can't lose, you can't forfeit, or give back your salvation. Charles Spurgeon, one of his sermons on the sealing of the Spirit said this, Take this for the closing word. Grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. But love him, honor him, and obey him, so will the seal always be bright before your eyes. End quote. May his sealing of us always be bright before our eyes. Amen? Amen. Secondly, the Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit seals us, but then the Holy Spirit indwelling us starts to teach us and you remember back in john chapter 14 verse 26 how jesus said the holy spirit will teach you all things and then in john 16 verses 13 to 14 how he will guide you into all truth and that he will disclose to us all things from the father through the son right and of course this applies to us this side of the cross, the day of Pentecost even, through the Holy Scriptures, through the Word of God. And the fact is, the Spirit of truth helps us to know, understand, and apply God's Word. You say, well, okay, but how? How so? How is that the case? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Shouldn't have to turn back too far there in your Bibles. He's writing to the church at Corinth. It's a church that had, had, had some issues, had some problems. In chapter 2, it's a tremendous section that I, I, I do wish we had more time to even more fully explore, especially even the first 11 verses because we're going to pick up in verse 12 but in summary Paul is sharing how he didn't bring to the Corinthians any superiority of speech or persuasive words of wisdom but with the simple message of the gospel Christ crucified which showed the message came in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power so that their faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men but their faith would rest on the power of God. Now we get down to verse 12 and imagine imagine Paul is the one standing before you and he is talking with us here at Calvary Bible Church and he says now we have received Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. 
combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, and let us put our own parentheses here and remind ourselves he's talking about an unbeliever. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Or the word can also be examined. The Apostle John affirms this in his first epistle when he tells his readers how they have no need for teachers of worldly wisdom and opinions of men, but because they have received the Holy Spirit, quote, His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you. In other words, friends, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, it affects your heart. He affects your, your mind. He affects your speech. As we said, he affects your conscience. He helps you to know and understand God's written word in a way that unbelievers cannot. It's not that an unbeliever can't read God's word and and understand or get some things from it, but they're going to miss the spiritual component that only comes to us through the Holy Spirit and because the word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is what they will miss that you will gain. I was thinking about that. I don't know if you've ever talked to a, uh, to a rocket scientist before or maybe a nuclear physicist or some kind of molecular biologist and, and somebody who could only explain complicated things in complicated ways, right? And it's just... And yet there are those... There are those in these fields that can also take some of these very high and lofty, complicated subjects and they can explain them in layman's terms so that even the most simple-minded of us can understand. That would be yours truly. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us. He helps us to understand the great spiritual truths of the Bible in ways that unbelievers just won't comprehend because, again, they are spiritually appraised. They're spiritually examined. They are spiritual in nature. Anyone can read the Bible and, again, understand some things, but the spiritual truths they will not understand. Or if they do understand, it's only because God is doing what? He is removing the blinders and allowing them to understand so as to bring them to faith that they could repent and believe. Number three, the Holy Spirit sanctifies. The Holy Spirit seals us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. We know this specifically from texts like 1 Peter 1-2, which refers to, quote, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And Romans 5-16, where Paul looks forward to the salvation of the Gentiles as an acceptable offering, quote, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 
2 and verse 13, Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth, capital S, Holy Spirit. And as we've learned in the past, there are maybe, let's say, three New Testament senses in which we are sanctified. And and that means, again, to be set apart. Set apart as unto God. Set apart as being made righteous and holy. So there is that moment of salvation when positionally we are sanctified in God's eyes, fully and completely. There is the future sense when we will be fully sanctified when we are with Christ Jesus for all eternity. But then there's this middle uh, land that we call progressive sanctification, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in us to make us more and more into the image of Christ. That is the, the aspect that we are most concerned with right now. Romans 8 and verse 29 Paul says, for those whom he, meaning the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be firstborn among many brethren. So we are to be conformed into the image of Christ. In Philippians 1 and verse 6, he says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then in 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you. How is he at work in you? Through his Holy Spirit, right? Work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Romans 12 and verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We learned about that renewing back in in Titus chapter 3, that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the loss of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the new self, new self, right? Which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Again, all compliments of his Holy Spirit. Colossians 3, 9 to 10, has Paul saying, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now this is all, it's, it's all amazing and, and incredible news that this is what is happening to us inside of us by way of the Holy Spirit. Except we could also interject here at this time, Houston, we have a problem. Turn to Galatians 5.17. Galatians 5.17. Just back there to the right, a few books. 
couple books, Galatians 5.17, Paul has been showing how one of the problems that we have with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, notice I said one of the problems we have, right? It's not God's problem, it's our problem. Is that unfortunately we still live in these sin-cursed fleshly bodies which include our sin-cursed hearts and minds, which Paul refers to as our flesh. And you see, the flesh and the Holy Spirit are diametrically opposed. Galatians 5 and verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. I, it made me think of like, you know, a cartoon, kid's cartoon of, I don't know, a, a cat and a dog, like in a bag, in a sack, right? And, and they're going at it, or a boxer, or something like that, and you're wondering which one's going to come out the victor. Verse 19, look down to verse 19 of Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing. And Paul, in case he missed anything, right? This is my own interjection, says, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we, we need to interject here and say that when Paul refers to those who practice such things, the word practice there, in the Greek, it's a present active verb, which means it is the ongoing habitual nature of someone which then tells us that if a person is living in an ongoing, habitually sinful way, as described here, they're actually what? An unbeliever. An unbeliever. This is not to say that a believer cannot participate in these sins, but it would not be the ongoing habit of their life, for they would at some point because of the Holy Spirit, get to a place where they realize their sin, they confess their sin, and they repent before the Lord. Such as we see in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, getting back to Galatians 5, where we've seen what the flesh produces. It produces sin. However, Paul also shows us the product of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So look ahead to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. In other words, if a Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, no law is needed. No law is needed to try and bring about any sort of godly attitudes and actions. 
because they're coming from the, the Spirit himself. Now, a couple of things about this fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is produced by the Holy Spirit in you. Also, the fruit produced is to be understood not as individual pieces so much, but really uh, a cornucopia that includes all the fruit. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't just manifest love and patience and self-control or, or joy, peace, kindness, and faithfulness, but rather the Holy Spirit manifests all of these things in the life of a believer. Now, granted, some of these characteristics will be stronger in us than other ones, and some will you know, have no problem showing up in our lives, some of them, while others may be a struggle for us to show and demonstrate. We, we often can quickly recognize which of the fruit of the Spirit we struggle with and which we feel like, okay, no, that's, that's, that's very actively being produced in my life. And then we say, okay, how can I, how can I work on, um, on uh, uh, seeing some of these others come more to fruition? Now, along with this, the verb also there is a present active, which means the fruit is the ongoing habit of a believer's life. Again, not to say that we don't have issues of sin at times, but it is the ongoing habit of a believer's life to have this fruit grow and manifest in a believer's um, life. And because of this, the fruit is also then an assurance of salvation. You might remember 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which has Paul saying, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test? So, you know, simply put, the fruit's there. Good news. Saved. Assurance of salvation. No sign of fruit. Bad news. You're either not saved or you are in sin. But this is part of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us producing this spiritual fruit in our lives. All right, so let's, let's, let's go back to this question of struggling with sin and that even though the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us, we still battle our flesh. How is it then that we can have victory? Can we have victory over our flesh? And part of this now involves our own responsibility in how we interact with the Holy Spirit. So another way that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us is by leading us. And if we are led, what does that typically require of us? That we would follow, right? Galatians 5 also uh, gives us details about being led, living in, walking by the Spirit. Earlier in Galatians 5, Paul was still battling against those who wanted to be Christians, but who still thought that they needed to keep the Jewish law. And his point is that since you now have the Holy Spirit, you're no longer obligated to the law. Look back at verse 16 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Look at verse 18. But if you are 
led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And you say, okay, but how is that done? Right? How, how is that done? Oh, you know, I, there's this little saying out there that people love to toss out. Let go. Let God. Now, I get to say when people say that. They're, they're, most of the folks, are, it, it's saying that sometimes we try and control things too much versus right letting go and letting God control them. And, and we would say yes and amen to that. The problem with the phrase, however, is it can also be taken as permission to not be proactive in one's faith and sanctification. In other words, it's that kind of thing, well, you know, since I'm saved and I have the Holy Spirit inside of me, I don't have to do anything. I just let go and let God, and God does it all. And we would say that's not exactly biblical either. What is biblical is a sort of both and, right? While the Spirit, Holy Spirit, does sanctify us, we also play a part in our sanctification. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Just keep going there a little bit to the right, hopefully just a few pages. Ephesians 5 and verse 18. Paul is exhorting believers to be imitators of God, to walk in love, avoid sinful things done by unbelievers, to walk wisely, not foolishly understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then he says this in Ephesians 5, 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now he then goes on to give an example of what that might look like in verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, if you are being filled with the Spirit, these are the kinds of things that filling should produce. Back in Ephesians 3 and verse 19, Paul speaks of being filled up to all the fullness of God. So while we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and sanctifying us, we also have the obligation to be led, live, walk, and be filled with or by the Holy Spirit. And you say, oh, what does that mean exactly? It really comes down to being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Allowing yourself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. There's, there's not, you know, some central control center that we, you know, might picture from some animated, you know, show or whatever. And the Holy Spirit's in there pulling levers and pushing buttons and making us do, you know, whatever it is he wants us to do. No, rather the Holy Spirit in you is doing things to bring about change 
in you and is certainly taking the lead, ready and willing to be in full control if you and I would let him. Imagine if you were ballroom dancing. Any ballroom dancers out there? A few hands. How easy is it to dance with yourself? Not very, right? I wouldn't imagine so. It's not going to look very pretty. So you have a partner. The partner has to do what? Lead. If both partners try and lead, chaos ensues. This would especially be the case if you were a novice dancing with your instructor. The novice needs to let the instructor lead. And as they do, then they are able to follow the instructor. They are able to start and learn from the instructor. And as they keep doing this, they will become a better and better dancer. In fact, things will get to the point where the partner starts to anticipate even where the instructor is going. They, (coughs) excuse me, become kind of one of the same mind. And at some point, it can look so fluid so beautiful, it's actually difficult to tell who's leading. Likewise, it is joyful for both parties at that point to be dancing in sync with one another. And then other people see that and they recognize the beauty in that and they want to do the same. So think about us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us leads us. We are to follow. And as we do, we learn and we get better and we start to anticipate His will. And this, of course, is in conjunction with the Word of God. And we start to become of the same mind, more and more in sync. And our life with Him becomes all the more joyful and beautiful. And other people see it. And they want the same. We try and lead. We try and force our will against the Spirit. It is anything but attractive. It can actually be quite painful for us. And so the Holy Spirit just kind of lets you do your thing. Doesn't leave you. Doesn't stop indwelling you but next thing you know it just kind of feels like you're dancing by yourself again and rather poorly at that and others take notice and they wonder what is wrong with that person here's the thing friends you are either being controlled by the holy spirit or you're not it sounds Simple, right? And, and if you aren't, guess what you're doing? Scripture tells us that you are now quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. That's from 1 Thessalonians 5.19 and Ephesians 4.30. Which is to say you're in sin. You're sinning. Either you are allowing yourself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit or you are in sin. There is no in-between. There is no neutral zone that you just kind of, you know, get to hang out in, not 
doing one or the other. You're either doing all things for the glory of God or you're not. And if you're not, you're quenching and grieving the Spirit, and that's sin. So what's the solution? What's the solution if you are not allowing yourself to be controlled by the Spirit? You're grieving the Spirit. You're quenching the Spirit. You're not doing all things for the glory of God. Well, that's where we return to 1 John 1, 9 and 10. Where again John says, he's writing to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You go, it's as simple as that? Yes! It's as simple as that. It's not rocket science. It's not molecular biology. If you are not being controlled by the Holy Spirit, then you are in sin until you confess and repent. And guess what? You're back to being controlled by the Spirit. And then you sin, and then you confess and repent because you're not then being controlled by this. And then you're back being controlled by the Spirit. Until you sin, and then you confess and repent. And then you're back being controlled by the Spirit. Again, let's reiterate, this does not mean in those times of sin that the Holy Spirit leaves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is indwelling you in that permanent way. So it's not a matter of you're losing your salvation. Now I'm saved again. Now I'm losing my salvation. Now I'm saved. No, 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 no. No, it's, it's that process of our own sanctification as permanently saved people. Lastly, lastly this morning, the Holy Spirit gives gifts. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. Uh, turn back, we keep kind of going back and forth, back and forth, back to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Oh, we could, let, let, let's just say, we could, we could spend a month easy just talking about gifts of the Spirit, okay? But we're going to do this in, you know, 10 minutes, all right? 1 Corinthians 12, 1. And while you're turning there, I'm going to actually read you 1 Corinthians 4, 1, which says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So this is in the context uh, of, of the fact that we are as Christians, servants of Christ, right? We are to serve Christ and others and stewards of the mysteries of God. Certainly, the truths of the gospel that they didn't have revealed back in the Old Testament that we now get in the New Testament. We're to be servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. In order to do this, the Lord has gifted all believers through his Holy Spirit. He has given us spiritual gifts that are to primarily be used in service to one another in the context of the church, but in at least one case also to the world out there at large. That would be a gift of evangelism, right? Plug for the evangelism team that were out there last night passing out cards and preaching the gospel. You can join them any Saturday night. Even if you don't, oh, they're going to make me talk. No, you don't have to talk. You can just go and hand out tracts and cards, okay? You can be there to encourage and pray with them Saturday night. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 1. Now, 
Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. We're going to do the helicopter thing and just land on a couple of quick islands here. Right? Skip down to verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That's important to remember. Any gift you have of the Holy Spirit, it's for the common good of the church. It is for the edification and the building up of the church. But one, this is verse 11, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. In other words, friends, uh, Christ is one body with many members. That would be us as Christians. Verse 13 For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. There's that baptism of the spirit at your time of salvation. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The one and the same Holy Spirit. In Romans 12, 4 to 6, I'm going to read this to you just real quick. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, talking about us as believers... So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. You're not going to have the same gifts as somebody else. We're all going to have gifts, but they're going to differ. And we need to exercise them Accordingly, as they have been given to us. 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, Peter says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So you are to use that gift, whatever it is that you've been given. New Testament professor at Southern Seminary, Thomas Schreiner, he gives us a great summary here he says, quote, the gifts of the Spirit are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit to individual Christians. These are gifts to be exercised under the Lordship of Christ for the edification of his body, the church. Christians are not to think too highly or lowly about the gifts that God has given them, but are to remember that it is God who is sovereignly and wisely given them each gift is needed each christian is baptized in the spirit at conversion and thus each christian is to be faithful to the gift that god has given them and most importantly seek to fulfill their gift in love for god and other christians end quote now what might seem logical at this point would be for us to expound on all the gifts mentioned in the New Testament passages. We're not going to do that. What I will tell you or do is tell you briefly what the gifts are that are mentioned in Scripture, but we're not going to spend time on each one. That will be for another study. So you don't feel like, oh man, I gotta, you know, I'm gonna just go quick here, all right? The gifts that we see mentioned in the scriptures are prophecy, which is direct revelation from the Lord, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healing, distinguishing of spirits, wisdom, knowledge, teaching, exhorting, evangelism, leadership, administration, service, helping, giving, and mercy. 
Going back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. Peter tells us that the gifts are divided up into two primary categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. Now, we also could divide them into gifts during the time of the apostles, which we would call sign gifts, because they acted as signs, and gifts for today. And the sign gifts during the time of the apostles were specifically given to to get the early church off the ground. As we've said many times, the early church did not have what? They didn't have the completed canon of Scripture yet. Therefore, they needed the apostles and those who were given the gift of prophecy to give the people God's revelation of his word. Furthermore, this was then backed up by miracles and healings to authenticate the apostle or the one given the gift of prophecy. And since anybody could claim to speak for God, just like they still do today, the people needed to know if what they are saying was really true and if it was really from God. Now, Even Jesus always accompanied miracles with teaching or vice versa. He would teach and then that would be accompanied by miracles. And same with the folks after he ascended up into uh, heaven. We saw crazy stuff happen at the day of Pentecost when the disciples uh, being able to speak in known languages that they hadn't previously learned followed then by Peter's gospel sermon, right? All of this incredible, miraculous stuff is being followed up with the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Now, with the, the completed canon of Scripture, God's more sure Word, we don't have the need for continued revelation and prophecy the way that they did. In fact, God warned people against trying to add or subtract anything from his word in Revelation 22 verses 18 to 19 where John records I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book End quote. And, and you might be thinking, uh, yeah, but, but, but Pastor Jay, that's, that's only in reference to the book of Revelation. True. But what period is covered in the book of Revelation? Huh. Think back to those first three chapters. Who was John writing to? The church. The church there, the seven churches that he specifically oversaw. And then Revelation takes us all the way to the end of the age. So Revelation is covering the church age through the end of the age. Again, no more gifts of prophecy, revelation, tongues, or miracles are needed in that respect. Now some of you might be thinking about 
1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 10, and you might even use that as a proof text that these gifts have ceased. There we read uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 10, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And Paul continues, now we... we, uh, (laughs) We do not have time to even get into this passage. But much of the interpretation of these verses hinge on whatever is the perfect, whatever is the partial of verse 10, and then what is the then of verse 12. And believe you and me, there is no shortage of good and godly people with many different and varied interpretations of these verses. The fact is, Paul's point was not in sharing that these gifts so much cease, but rather that faith, hope, and love, and especially love, is permanent and is to be pursued and desired more than all of these other signed gifts. Now, there's, there's something else to consider, and i got to start wrapping this up. Regarding miracles of the Bible, consider this. As a whole, miracles constitute a very small percentage of scripture. And like the New Testament, Old Testament miracles were also there often for authenticating a leader like Moses or Joshua or one of the prophets. And in fact, there's really only three primary periods um, or periods of people that were doing the miraculous. They begin with Moses in Egypt, right, as God's spokesperson, continuing through the Exodus, followed by Joshua bringing the people into the promised land of Canaan, with some scattered miracles then throughout the book of Judges. But then things go relatively quiet until Elijah and Elisha come on the scene. They do a host of miracles, and then things really go dark during the next 800 years. Years until Jesus comes on the scene, followed by his disciples. We're not saying miracles weren't taking place. We're saying people didn't have the gift of doing these miracles. Once we get past the day of Pentecost and the beginning of Acts, what do we see but the miracles start to be less and less frequent until we get to the end. Paul survives the encounter with the poisonous viper, and then that's it. That's it. We don't have any other recorded miracles in any of the other New Testament epistles. Does this mean miracles don't exist today? Oh, contraire. Of course they exist. Of course miracles exist. They absolutely do. And as we've said, every time somebody gets saved, that is of the miraculous nature. It's a supernatural work of God in them. But then, yes, there can be miracles of healing. And there can be We'll have to sit and talk about what other kind of miracles there could be. What we are saying, though, is that that people aren't given the spiritual gift of miracles, healings, revelations, tongues, because they're not needed with the completed canon of Scripture. Okay, we got to now, yeah, I'm already over. Here's our wrap-up. You know, as as always, what, what do we do with these truths? It's, 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 it's a lot of thanking and praising God for what we've learned about His Holy Spirit, right? Thank and praise God that unlike the saints of the Old Testament, unlike the saints even of Jesus' day, as far as you are a believer, man, you got one up. 
Because you got the Holy Spirit living inside of you, indwelling you. And that is all based on what Christ has done on the cross, that he, that he went to the cross in our place, that he died in our place, that his blood was shed for you and I, that there was nothing we could do about our sin, no way we could rectify our, our, our um, uh, being enemies with God, except for Christ going to the cross for us, in our place, accomplishing salvation for us, paying the price that we should have paid through his blood. But then it didn't end there because he goes into the ground and three days later he resurrects from the dead. Victory over sin and death. Of course, he goes to the Father and sends us his spirit to now indwell all those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Secondly, thank and praise God that when you were baptized by the Holy Spirit at your conversion, he placed you into the body of Christ, he indwelt you, and he sealed you. He sealed your salvation with the Holy Spirit of promise. Your salvation is 100% secure. Thirdly, thank and praise God that his Holy Spirit renews you It causes you to be conformed into the image of his son. And yet you and I have the responsibility to be led by the spirit, live by the spirit, walk by the spirit and be filled with the spirit. If you're not, you're sinning. You're sinning against the spirit because you're quenching him. You're grieving him to which you must confess and repent. And lastly, thank and praise God for the spiritual gifts, whatever those might be, bestowed on you. And here's what I would say about those spiritual gifts. Be less concerned with, you know, okay, where, where's the list? Where's the list? And, and am I, what, which one am I in those lists? And that can be really frustrating for some people. I'm not saying we shouldn't consider the list in the scripture. Of course we should. But rather, start by maybe just thinking about what are your desires? What's your giftedness? For serving the Lord. Pray about it. What, what, what are the needs of the church and the body? Maybe if you're really confused, ask a close brother or sister. One of us is elders. One of your fellowship group leaders or teachers. And then here's the deal. It's the Nike slogan, folks. Just do it. Just do it. Just start serving. And you know what? Maybe you go, ah, <laughs> Children's ministry, not for me. <clears throat> Guess I'm going to go try those college kids, you know? Or vice versa, whatever it is, right? You'll figure it out. But remember, to neglect your gift is a sin. So we have to not neglect our gift either. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Oh, we praise you for him. For all of these truths we've learned today, Lord, may they encourage us um, May they cause us to uh, excel still more. We pray this all of your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.